Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We've developed a method for this and it's called reference task forecasting. And and and, and Robert Carroll could easily have done a reference task forecast if he had thought about it. And so can all of us, you know, when we do things. If he had done a real reference task forecast, which would have been Ask authors who have already finished their books, not planning to do it, but have, that's the key point. This is not planning. It's already been done. So it's empirical. It's on the ground. You can't discuss the numbers. It actually took this long. He would simply add up those numbers and divide it by the number of authors he's, he asked, and he would have a realistic anchor. This would be the right anchor. This would be the base rate for writing a book. He got it completely wrong by getting the base rate for writing uh, journalistic articles. And this is the thing, you can't compare activities that are that different, but it happens all the time. And we even do it subconsciously without even making it explicit. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Bent, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you have a new book out called How Big Things Get Done, which is all about uh, making huge mega projects happen, which I absolutely loved. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made with your life and career? So uh, my father was uh, actually a construction site manager. So I grew up on construction sites, and I think that has a lot to do with my professional interest and my academic interest. And uh, my mother was a social worker. Mm-hmm. And how did that shape kind of what choices you made? And what did you learn from them, you know, from their experiences about the work that you ended up doing? So uh, I think the first thing that I learned is that I really like construction sites. Uh, so my my parents would take me along to, uh, you know, the places where my father worked. And that could be buildings or bridges and tunnels and so on. And, uh, and, and I don't remember not going to construction sites ever. So this, this must have been from, you know, I was a baby. And uh, I remember the smell of construction sites. I remember, the, you know, the, uh, the people who worked there that I, you know, they look like big, strong people and, and doing very interesting things that be 
fire, there'd be noise, there'd be smoke and stuff, you know, and dust and uh, something that appeals to a kid, you know. And uh, later on, when I became a teenager, uh, I actually got to work on construction sites. So my father got me jobs on construction sites. And it just means that, I, that I've been in, interested in how to build things and, and how to build big things from a very early age. Mm-hmm. And then what about from uh, your mother in terms of the social work side? Uh, what did she teach you about sort of people, human relationships, and making your way in the world? Yes. So my mother, you know, would would teach me exactly about that, you know, that uh, it's uh, it's not only about things, it's also about people. And I actually think that's a really important insight. It actually turns out now when I study these things as a scholar and we dig really deep, it's more about people than it's about things. It's always the people. And that's actually something that comes out in our book, you know, right up front, we we make it clear there are two root causes of why things go bad or well, and those two root causes are psychology and power. Uh-huh. And those are <laughs> yeah. so we so we're not talking about anything that's got to do with buildings or artifacts, or bridges or anything or IT systems. Uh, yeah, this is actually about people, right? Psychology is all people. Power is all people. Totally. We'll we'll get into that. Uh, one thing I wonder. I mean, you're an educator. Uh, I assume you were educated in Denmark. And this is something I always wonder with educators. Uh, two things. One, you know, I don't know how much time you've spent looking at the American educational system, but I'm curious about what the differences are in the way that you were uh, educated versus probably somebody like I was educated. And if you were given the task of redesigning the global education system from the ground up, speaking of a mega project, what would you change about it right now? Well, first of all, I was actually also educated in the American education system. So okay. I was educated in Denmark and the United States, specifically UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Okay, so we have and, a very uh, similar background then because I was a Berkeley undergrad. <laughs> all right, yeah. And I spent a lot of time at Berkeley too. I, I had mentors at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, so I know both systems well, both the the Danish Scandinavian system and the American system. And the uh, yeah, they're very different. So the main difference is that you get ex- you get paid to go to university. Didn't people just like fall off their chairs? You know, when I mentioned that. So, so my daughter uh, recently graduated from university, and 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 at this stage, you know, she was paid about uh, uh, eight nine hundred dollars a month to attend university, so to cover her living expenses, uh, and that's on top of. Uh, getting to live in heavily subsidized student housing, uh, you know, with your own bathroom, your your own bedroom, uh, shared kitchen, and so on. So, so that's the main difference is that uh, the education is considered a public good that people should get for free, mm-hmm. and not only for free. You actually pay young people to go to school because you want to incentivize them to get educated, and that's that's how you have this very high level of education in Scandinavia because the kids are actually paid to go to school. And everybody's encouraging to do that and saying that's the future. You need to you need to be educated uh, in the kind of society and the kind of world that we live in today. Uh, so education, health, housing, and so on are considered social goods and not private goods like in the states where you have to fight for it yourself. You have to pay for it yourself. And it's actually a real problem if you have if you have many kids. You know how can you even afford to put them through? That's the main uh, difference. And if you ask me, how as a mega project would I? Uh, design education, I have no doubt I would do it the way it's done in Scandinavia and the Netherlands, by the way. I consider the Netherlands, you know, an honorary part of Scandinavia because the country, I've also worked in the Netherlands at the uh, Technical University in Delft, which is also a very good university. And uh, 
And uh, they do it the same way in the Netherlands as in Scandinavia. And that's the way to go, you know. That's the way to make societies uh, uh, rich, to have a lot of educated people and and make sure that they have good jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, so what I wonder then, you know, as somebody who has an economics background, let's talk about incentives, right? Because, you know, every Indian kid has the story of going home and telling their parents some kid at school gets paid for good grades and your parents look at you and say, you're out of your damn mind. You get a roof on, you know, over your head and a meal on the table, get back to work. But it makes me think about the the sort of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation issues when you're paying people to go to school. Because, you know, I, I wonder how that, you know, like aligns with incentives uh, when you're paying people to go to school. I mean, from the perspective of somebody with your background, how do you resolve that? So, um the incentives are not so strong that people will actually choose to go to school just because of the money. You will actually make more money if you get a regular job than by being a student. So uh, I think the level of incentives are set just right. But you need to live, you know, if you if you uh, go to school and you actually want the kids to study instead of uh, running around, uh, you know, being, you know, working at a McDonald's or something like that. That's not a good use of your time if you're in this really, really high-level institution than a good university is, you want the kids to spend their time in the university, not flipping burgers at a, at a, at a, at a, at a burger stand. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so explain to me, one, what the curriculum is, is like. And you know, obviously, this is a huge issue here in the United States, the fact that we've riddled a, you know, practically an entire generation with student loan debt. And what I wonder about uh, is how you could actually bring some of that to the United States. Because I think there's one argument that people always come back to, and that is that, oh, well, Scandinavian countries are small, therefore it's possible there, but it's not possible here, which I don't entirely agree with because we're not accounting for every variable. But I also don't know because I'm not you know, a person who makes educational policy. I'm just somebody who's interested in this as somebody who has student loan debt. Right. So... Uh... Student loans are common in Scandinavia, so uh, the subsidies are not enough uh, to live by, uh, and so you need more, and uh, and uh, many students take loans. It's not necessary. I mean, you can go through a university without loans. My daughter didn't want to take loans, so she didn't do it. She worked on the side instead. Uh, I took loans when I was a student. I thought that my time was better spent on studying than going out and, and working, you know, a low-paid uh, job. Uh, so I took loan and it, loans and it took me about 10 years to pay them off after I graduated. It wasn't a huge amount. It's not like what you hear, the, the horror stories from the United States, but it's there. It's there and it's, it, it means something. So, uh, so I think loans to a degree can be, can be okay. So your other observation and question, you know, whether this is only something for small countries, I don't see why. I mean, uh, why would it be something only for small countries? I actually don't see it. <laughs> what size of country has to do with it. You could always subdivide a big country into smaller units if that's your problem and then mm-hmm. say, okay, we'll manage this within smaller geographical and administrative units and, and do it like that. Yeah. So why do you think it hasn't happened in the United States? What do you think the the barriers to this is in the United States? I think it's culture. And, you know, one of the strongest thing we see when we study things around the world is that this thing about this is the way we do things around here and that's reason enough to do it around there because this is the way we did it in the past. That's why we do it now and that's why we'll do it in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's culture it's culture and habits and it's very, very hard to change 
culture. You know, you know how we say in in, in corporation uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you can have all the strategy that you want to change something like this. If the culture is that we don't do it like this, we don't do it like that, and the strategy will not get implemented. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile. com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. How is the curriculum different uh, in uh, Denmark versus the United States, because I mean, you went to UCLA, I went to Berkeley, you and I both know this, you sit in these large lecture halls where you're literally just a number. And, you know, uh, when you take an exam, you don't even have a name. They just give you a student ID number. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, there's a bit of that in Scandinavian universities. It varies a bit. There's a new 
pedagogical model that is being increasingly implemented that is called problem-based learning. PBL is called for short, problem-based learning. And the universities that subscribe to that model typically use much smaller groups of students. And actually the students work in at the at the most micro level. Uh, they work in groups of, you know, like five to seven students in each group and they get projects that they have to solve uh, each term or each semester, whatever the unit is. And uh, and then they have some classes, you know, to support that. So 50% of the work is spent on their project, which they do in this group of, of five, seven people. And uh, 50% of their time is spent in classes, but they're not typically much smaller than the several hundred students you might see in, in a traditional big lecture hall. So, so, and it turns out actually that the students that are going through that model and the universities that are using that model are performing better than the, than the traditional model, which is the large lecture halls. So there's a movement away from huge lecture halls uh, towards smaller groups of students because it appears to be better pedagogy to do it. That way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of problem-based learning, what has been the trajectory of your career that led you to writing this book? Well, um, I mean, I'm an economic geographer by training. So both my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD are all in economic geography. What lack of imagination. That's actually part of the daily system, that this is common. You you don't make the same changes as you do in the American system, where you can shift completely, you know, from philosophy to economics and, and then to law or whatever. So I did it all in economic geography, and that means that I got trained uh, in urban urban uh, geography and urban economics. So I've been trained at, uh, you know, looking at cities, understanding cities and designing cities, as a matter of fact, to make them work better. At one stage, not long after I graduated with my uh, PhD, I observed that cities built in bigger and bigger chunks. So everything was getting projectified, as it's called now. So before you talked a lot about plans and you had land use planning and you needed to have a good land use plan for a city and then you develop the city according to that. That whole uh, conversation changed uh, a while ago into talking more about projects, specific projects. So we need a new urban rail project here. Uh, We need a new energy system uh, or we need a new housing project over here, whatever. And... um, so things became more about project and uh, big projects. And I noticed this change. And I, at that stage, I, in my interpretation, that's the future. No, that's what I thought at that stage. This is the future. And it's turned out to be uh, true, you know, that it, it was and it is the future. So things have been, become more and more projectified. The projects have become many more in number and numbers and the projects have become much larger in, in millions and then hundreds of millions and then billions of, uh, of dollars. And now even, you know, trillions of dollars. There are now projects that measure in trillions of dollar, dollars, unbelievably, as that sound. Uh, so that's how I got into this was just looking at, uh, you know, what's, what's moving on the ground and seeing what's moving our projects. And they actually what define our cities now, I thought, you know, like 30 years. And then, you know, I started looking around. Has, has anybody done research on this? Like, how are these projects performing? This was actually my first question. I, I wanted to know what's the performance of these projects. Are they doing well? Are they doing not so well? 
Do they get delivered on budget? Do they deliver the promised benefits? Uh, do they keep to their schedule? Questions like that, you know, basic performance questions. Mm. And yeah. uh, at that time, I went to the library, you know, they, we still went to libraries at that time to find out what the situation was, talk to research librarians and so on, which searched the whole globe you know, for information about this. And there was none. There weren't any big studies where you could, uh, you know, statistically, validly answer the question of how these projects are performing. And this is despite already trillions of dollars uh, were spent on projects like this on a global scale, you know. So rail projects were built, uh, housing projects were built, energy projects, eventually IT systems came in, mining projects, defense projects, you name it, uh, skyscrapers, everything. And mm-hmm. uh, you actually couldn't find good data on this. So this is what a scholar loves, you know, if there's a wide area on the map where nobody has uh, yet answered the basic questions, that's what you want to go for. So that's what I decided I wanted to go for. And I wanted to, uh, you know, do the first study that actually answered the question, how a big projects perform. So that's mm-hmm. how I started. And it was very much inspired by my supervisor at UCLA, uh, uh, Professor Martin Wax, you know, who was studying big transportation systems in uh, in LA, including the LA Metro and, and other big projects. And and he inspired me uh, very much to to study this. Yeah. Well, as a resident of Southern California, I can tell you that public transportation in LA is shit. It's terrible. Yeah. It's probably the worst tell in the country. Well, you opened the book by saying over budget, over time, over and over again, the pattern was so clear that I started calling it the iron law of mega projects. And the iron law is not a law like in Newtonian physics, meaning something that invariably produces the same outcome. And, you know, it got me thinking about a building in India that was across the street from my grandmother's house. And I remember looking at that building when I was there in seventh grade and it was under construction. Then I went back two years later in ninth grade, and it was still under construction. Then I went back after my first year of business school. It was still under construction. And then in 2018, keep in mind, this was, I think, 91 was the first time I saw this building. In 2018, when I went back, I looked across the street and I was like thinking, holy shit, somebody finished this building. And I remember asking a girl that one of my roommates was dating, you know, about the difference between you know, China and India. And she said, well, you guys are a democracy. That's why shit like that happens. She said in China, if somebody wants to build a mega highway, it'll be done in three months. So talk to me about, you know, why this happens in the first place, because I remember hearing a story and I'm paraphrasing this. So, you know, don't quote me verbatim on this, but it was about Apple's relationship with China. And it was on the New York Times Daily podcast. And, you know, the Apple team went over there And they said, well, we need to build a factory. And there was a giant mountain of some sort. And the Chinese looked at them and said, don't worry, it'll be gone in a few weeks. And when they got back a couple months later, they had gotten rid of a mountain and built a factory. Right. Yeah. So that is the difference between China. And we've actually started that. So we've done a regular scholarly study of how things are going in China. And it is a significant result that China is delivering projects much faster than we are in in the West. Not as people all also thought on budget. They actually don't deliver on budget, even though everybody thought so until we did our studies. They go over budget like we do, but they do deliver faster. Uh, so the iron law uh, still applies in China. They just get to it faster, you know, in the sense that they deliver their projects faster. And the iron law is, is like you said, it's a statistical law, but it actually applies 
with a very high likelihood and a very high level of statistical significance. So it's, it's, it's really written in stone that for, uh, even though it is probabilistic and not deterministic, your likelihood is very high that thing will go wrong for you. It's like going to the casino and having a prediction you're going to lose, you know, those are your odds. Uh, really, that, that's, that's what it's like. Those are, that's what behavioral economists call base rates. And we have, we have uncovered the base rates for building. Uh, big projects and the base rates don't look good. So the base rates are like the 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 odds that you go and play the roulette or go and play blackjack in in a casino. And and one of the the, the big mistakes that are made in projects is not getting the base rates right. So when you ask why does this happen, that's actually one fundamental uh, answer is that people don't get the base rates right. They don't know what the likelihood is that that they're going to be able to achieve what they say they're going to achieve at the cost they say they're going to do it at and at the schedule they say they're going to do it at. They don't understand that the numbers that they come up with are to a large degree fiction, you know, instead of uh, reality because they haven't gone back and looked at the empirical base rates for what it is that they're doing. They think it up from the inside out as uh, behavioral economists say. They try to understand their project from the inside out instead of understanding it from the outside in, understanding what the empirical reality is out there in the world when you try to do something like that. So that's that's one thing. And this has already gotten us deep into behavioral economics, you know. It's called the base rate fallacy in behavioral economics that you actually mistake your base rates for what you're doing. And it's very common. Even if we are driving a trip across town, you know, we have a certain idea of how long it's going to take. And very often it's wrong. That's our base rate. You know, we say it's going to take uh, 20 minutes, but it actually takes 40 minutes. And we got it wrong. We thought the base rate was 20 minutes, but it was actually 40 minutes. So even at that mundane level, you know, this applies. And if you start observing yourself, you will see it over and over in your your daily life. Other things from behavioral economics that explains why things go wrong is optimism. And in a way, you can say the base rate fallacy is a specific instance of optimism. So Daniel Kahneman, you know, the, the preeminent uh, behavioral psychologist who got the Nobel Prize in, uh, in economics in, in 2002 for his work on all these cognitive biases, he says that probably the most preeminent behavioral bias that we are subject to is optimism bias. So it's, it, it appears that we are hardwired from nature to be optimistic. Which is probably a good thing, you know. I mean, uh, it, it's, it, it probably has its function in evolutionary terms, and that's probably why we have it. It, it, it makes us survive in certain uh, situations. But in other situations, as Kahneman points out, it can be a real disaster to be optimistic. So I usually like to use the metaphor with my students so they remember what I'm saying. If you're getting on a plane and you hear the co-pilot say to the pilot, I'm optimistic about the fuel situation, you want to get off that plane, right? Uh, and you want the flight attendant to be an optimist, not the pilot. So I'm happy to have a flight attendant that say, we're going to give you the best experience you've had on a plane lately, you know, and, and uh, just leave it in our hands and you'll have a great flight. That's the kind of optimism I like on a plane. I don't want to hear the pilot say I'm optimistic about the fuel situation. It's the same on projects, you know, the fuel for projects is money. And if you're optimistic about the budget, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for a crash of the project, just as optimism about the fuel situation on the plane is a recipe for uh, a crash of the plane, right? So that's an example of optimism being misplaced. So that's misplaced optimism. And that's a huge problem 
if I had to single out only one thing, just if I could only mention one thing of why projects go wrong, it's optimism. But if there's not only one thing, there are lots of other cognitive biases, and that's only like the psychology side of things. Then there's the power side of things, and, and that's a new thing in this book. You don't hear about that a lot when you talk about projects, about power bias. You hear a lot about cognitive bias, and that's behavioral economics for you and behavioral science. But there's actually a type of bias that I have found when I study these projects that is completely or almost completely ignored by behavioral economists, and that's power bias. That is actually not only about psychology, there are also power issues. So psychology is innocent in the sense that people are not deliberate about being optimistic. It's not optimism if you're deliberately optimistic, you know, then it's calculating. So optimism is unconscious. Power bias is conscious. That actually is trying to game a situation. So if you're jockeying for position, that's a power situation. So you're working in an organization. It might be a big a private corporation or it might be government. And uh, you know that a lot of projects are being done and all these projects are in competition for a limited amount of funds. You want to make your project look as good on paper as possible in order to get those funds that are available. You want to be on top of the stack of the projects that get prioritized and get funded. How do you do that? You make your project look good on paper. You underestimate the cost so it looks cheaper than it will be. You underestimate the schedule so it looks like you can do it faster than it actually can be. And you overestimate the benefits or the revenues, whatever uh, the unit is, so it looks that you will achieve more with this project than you actually will. Then you're in business. You have positioned your project uh, in a way where uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's jockeying for the funding that, that is there for the projects. And uh, it has a higher likelihood of getting funded than if you had been honest and truthful about uh, a budget schedule and benefits. So that's yeah. power bias. That's, that's trying to game the system. It's also called cooking the books in the U.S., right? And that's a common uh, way to describe it. You cook the books in order to make things look better than they are. It's, it's a very common practice. Yeah. Well, one thing you say uh, is that most big projects are not merely at risk of not delivering as promised, nor are they not only at risk of going seriously wrong, they're at risk of going disastrously wrong because their risk is fat-tailed. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. So uh, this is actually a statistical expression, fat tails. Uh, and uh, it's also called black swans. Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, at uh, NYU wrote this book called The Black Swan, where he made this term uh, popular and very widespread in news. Uh, that uh, these are extreme events, extreme values on some kind of probability distribution. So it could be a probability distribution of costs. Well, then the, uh, the fat tail will contain very high costs or very high cost overruns. Same if you're talking schedule. It will be very, very big schedule overruns or very long schedules would be in the fat tail. Uh, and it actually turns out, and again, this is something we uncover in the book that hasn't been systematically uncovered before for a large number of project types. Uh, so this is brand new and published in the book is that we look at how fat are the tails for different types of projects. We look at 25 different types of projects. And uh, it turns out that for the vast majority of projects, the tails are fats. And this is incredibly important because it means that it, it means that basically you can't predict the outcomes of these projects. So everybody is acting and pretending that you can predict project outcomes well, mathematically and statistically. And this is science. This is not just something 
we think, you know, or it's not just something it looks like. This is a fact. If something is fat tailed, you cannot predict it. You can still mitigate against it. So it's not like all hope is lost. You can still mitigate against it, but you cannot predict it. And actually, uh, you know, the vast majority, like like 20 out of 25 uh, uh, project types are fat tailed. And uh, a lot of things in society are fat tailed, including the climate crisis, climate a lot of climate effects are fed tail. So, uh, so that means that it's very difficult to predict uh, things, you know, floods and fires and so on, like we've seen in California uh, and, and many other places on the planet recently are both fed tail uh, events. So are terrorist attacks. So are cyber, atta- cyber, cyber attacks on, on, on IT and so on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. 
One of the things you go on to say about this is to think of the duration of a project as an open window, the longer the duration, the more open the window, the more open the window, the more opportunity for something to crash through and cause trouble, including a big, bad black swan. But then you go on to say, not only is it safer for planning to be slow, it is good for planning to be slow, as the directors of Pixar well know. After cultivating, after all, cultivating ideas and innovation takes time, spotting the implications of different options and approaches takes more time and puzzling through complex problems, coming up with solutions and putting them to the test takes still more time. Planning requires thinking and creative, critical and careful thinking is slow, which, you know, you basically say that we want to think slow and act fast. And yet the duration of the project is also an issue here. Uh, yeah. So how do you resolve the tension between those two things? Yeah, so we, we distinguish sharply between uh, planning and delivery, or as it's called in architecture, design and, and construction, or as it's called in movies, uh, development and shooting, you know. So so this is like a, a division in two parts of the whole process where the first is characterized by thinking. So you're not doing things yet. You're thinking about and planning what you're going to do. And the second is actually doing it. So actually shooting the movie, if we talk about Pixar, whereas the first part is is uh, thinking about how you're going to shoot the movie and designing the movie, coming up with the story and, and, and casting and everything. So it's really important to have that distinction. And the slow part is the thinking part. When you deliver, you actually want to be fast. And that's the most expensive uh, phase. And therefore, you can lose the most in that phase. So that's in the delivery phase. And that's why it's so important to be fast there. And that's where the window of doom really applies. It's not so bad if you're hit by something during the planning uh, phase, you know, your, your, the damage will be limited. But if it happens during delivery, uh, then you can be in, in real trouble. And we use actually, uh, specifically, we illustrate this with uh, going deep into Pixar's uh, planning and delivery process and going deep into Frank Gehry, the architect, or so the world's most famous architect, uh, into, into his and his partner's uh, process. And and this came about like simply like when I lived in Los Angeles, Frank uh, uh, Gehry was up and coming and I noticed his buildings and so on. And at one stage, he built the Guggenheim Bilbao, like probably like he, it's, it's one of the two most magnificent buildings of the past hundred years. And people generally agree on that. The other one is the Sydney Opera House. And we actually cover both in the book. But, you know, when you look at the Guggenheim Bilbao, I don't know, have you been there? I, I have not, unfortunately. Okay, well, I, I strongly recommend it. And, and also to all listeners, you know, like if you haven't been to Bilbao in Spain and seen the Guggenheim Bilbao, you got a really good thing. you got a treat waiting for you. you got to go. It's, it's a, an amazing experience. And when you see that, you see him, you go, wow. That yeah. must have gone way over budget. That must have gone <laughs> way over schedule and so on. Because like, this is like, like out of a different world, you know, it looks like something from outer space that landed smack in the middle of, uh, you know, all the old citizens of Bilbao on the riverfront. Yeah. And no. So, so I found out that it was built actually slightly below budget. It, the budget was a hundred million dollars and it was built slightly below and it was built a few days, uh, before the end of the schedule. So it was built on budget and on schedule. And it generated multiple times the revenues and the benefits, both for the museum individually, but also mm -hmm. for the city of Bilbao of, and from, for the whole region, the Basque region that Bilbao is located in. So this is a project that has overachieved on every point, which is like 0.5% of all 
for projects. So we calculated this. That's what the iron law says, that you have a 0.5% likelihood of delivering on budget on time and the benefits that you promise. So here we have not only delivering uh, on all these things, but actually over delivery, especially in terms of the benefits. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was going, wow, if you can build something like the Guggenheim Bilbao on time and budget, you can build anything on time and budget. Let me go pick Frank Gary's brain. And I hope that he would agree to that. And he did, you know, so we, we've actually been in contact for, you know, 20 years or something by now. And, uh, and, um, it's, it's, uh, it's really amazing to see uh, what it is that people who can do this are doing. And he's one of them, he and his yeah. team. And Pixar is the uh, one other example. We have many examples like this in the book. These are the two biggest examples. Pixar, same thing. Ed Catbull, the former CEO of Pixar, uh, uh, you know, developed a way of doing movies that is uh, exactly like Frank Harris. They actually stimulate uh, the buildings or the movies before they go out and shoot them. So this is a whole simulation process where... Gary has actually built the building before they start building it. So Gary does it on a computer and so does Pixar. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, Pixar goes through nine different versions. Gary goes through many, many more, many more than nine. Pixar is typically eight, nine versions before they shoot the final uh, movie. And yeah. by the time you have shot the, the movie in uh, a simulated way or done the movie in a simulated way uh, eight, nine times, you actually know what you're doing. So you just go out and do it one more time with real everything, then you got the movie. And uh, we call it try, learn again. Try, learn again. That's three words that we should all keep in mind no matter what you do. Just try. It doesn't even matter whether you succeed the first time. Not at all. What matters is that you're trying. Then when you've tried, you learn. So what do I learn from what from from the trial run that I just did? What do I learn from this? And then you do it again in an improved fashion. And this is what Pixar does. It tries, it learns, and again, eight, nine times, and then it shoots the movie. With Gary, it varies a lot from building to building, but it's typically dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds of times, you know, before they, they actually build the, the actual building. Mm-hmm. And we have specific examples also from New York, the, uh, the, the, the skyscraper that Gary, uh, the, the building, New York with a billow, billowing facade, you know, uh, is uh, we describe how that was done in the book and uh, the many different iterations that it went through, and how it was built on budget and 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 not at a much higher cost than your completely ordinary uh, box of a skyscraper. And this is the thing because of the tools that uh, Gary uses and Pixar and others who are good at this use, they are actually able to keep costs down on things that look very expensive. Yeah. Well, so one other um, thing that you talk about is how people make decisions during projects. And you say that when people are asked to make a best guess scenario, the scenario most likely to occur, what they come up with is generally indistinguishable uh, from what they settle on when asked for the best case scenario. And you talk about how, you know, we typically do make intuitive sort of instinctive decisions, but this can be disastrous for big projects. So how do you mitigate that? Uh, you mitigate it by getting the right base rates. Uh, so you, you want to know, uh, what's the likely thing. So we have an example in the book about, uh, you know, uh, uh, Carol writing, uh, his book about, uh, uh, in New York. It's called the book is called the power broker. And, uh, and it's about probably the American who has built the most mega projects in history. Uh, uh, 
And uh, Carol was a journalist at a newspaper. And so he figured, how difficult can it be to write a book? And he said, you know, if I have three weeks for a big feature article, that's like a chapter for a book. And if I have, if I have 10 chapters in my book, then I need 10 times three weeks, you know, that's 30 weeks and, uh, or whatever the numbers were that he used. Yeah. And, uh, and he actually came in, you know, like it'll take me about 10 months to write a book uh, based on his experience as a journalist at the newspaper. So why don't I say a year and then I already have some cushion, you know, two months that, uh, and I'd be pretty safe that I can uh, write the book within that. And then he started and he realized that writing a book has nothing to do with writing, uh, you know, uh, even big, even big articles for a newspaper. Yeah. And, uh, and he got, he got really, uh, you know, kind of ashamed, uh, uh, about this when people would ask him, you know, how's your book going? And uh, he'd already worked on it for two, three, four, five years. Uh, and uh, he realized that uh, he didn't want to talk about this. And and he and his wife actually had to sell their house in order to finance uh, his writing of the book. So they put the whole family finances at risk for this. And this is what you don't want to do when you're doing a project, right? And, and not until he, uh, at one stage, he applied for a desk in the New York Public Library. And... Uh, and he got it. And uh, that's the first time he got to hang out with other authors writing similar big books, you know. And uh, and they would ask him, how are you doing with your book? And and he squirms, you know, and said, it's okay. How long has it taken you? Uh, I, I'm five years in now. Oh, that's not too bad, you know. Uh, one of the writers would say, my my Roosevelt, I'm on, I'm on the seventh year with my Roosevelt, you know, or whatever book it was that they were writing. And and Carol tells this story in, in, in his book called Working. And, uh, and, uh, and he's, we, we, we analyze this in behavioral, uh, terms, you know, and, and, and uh, our conclusion is that, uh, that Carol's anchor was wrong. So he anchored in his experience as a journalist. And this is our general answer to this is that the reason that uh, these things go wrong over and over is that people generally anchor in the wrong anchor. And again, yeah. this is something that is very well documented in behavioral uh, psychology and behavioral economics, that this is a common thing. We all do it all the time. Yeah. And this is what Carol had done. And finally, he got some release that he understood this is normal. And he never made the mistake again, of course. Like after he had done his first book, he went on to write multiple volumes of a, of a Lyndon B. Johnson uh, biography, which is also highly acclaimed. I think they both won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way, both the one about Moses. And the one about Johnson. And uh, and uh, he never made the mistake again. Now he understood that this is what it takes to write a book and he could manage it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that struck me in particular because I remember you know, when I got my book deal, uh, I had this habit of writing a thousand words a day and it was really easy to publish blog posts. And my editor said, can you have it done in six months? And I said, yeah, that sounds reasonable. You know, 45,000 word manuscript, a thousand words a day. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to knock this thing out in 45 days, not realizing that writing a book is very different than free writing or publishing blog posts. Uh, amazingly, I actually, despite a very wildly inaccurate anchor, did get the, the, the manuscript done. But when I wrote my second book, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to pull that off. It ended up taking almost 16 months. Uh, yeah. to do it. And I, I, I was like, okay, now to your point, I basically used uh, the wrong anchor, which I, I guess takes us into this idea of what you call reference class 
forecasting. I, I assume that's what you mean by looking at the, the finding the right anchor, looking at what other people have done before on a similar project. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we've developed a method for this and it's called reference task forecasting. And, 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 and Robert Carroll could easily have done a reference task forecast if he had thought about it. And so can all of us, you know, when we do things, he just didn't think about it. And that's also completely common. We don't think like that for whatever reason, even though it's completely commonsensical when you hear it. So, so, so listen to this, you know, what Carroll could have done was, you know, he would, he would, he would find, let's say five, 10 books that uh, were similar to the one that he was planning to write, he would contact the authors and, authors and ask them, how long did it take you to write this book? And he would get different. Somebody would say uh, 16 months like you, which would probably be on the fast side. And somebody would say 10 years, you know, which would be on the long side. And then there would be, in the middle, there would be a bunch of, of uh, you know, two, three, four, five years. And 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 he could take more than five or 10 if he wants it, but five or 10, you're already in business. If he'd done 20 or 25, and that's pretty easy, you know, when it's about books and he got the answer from the authors, he would simply add up those numbers and divide it by the number of authors he's, he'd asked and he would have a realistic anchor. This would be the right anchor. This would be the base rate for writing a book. He got it completely wrong by getting the base rate for writing uh, journalistic articles. And this is the thing, you can't compare activities that are that different, but it happens all the time. And we even do it subconsciously without even making it uh, explicit. I mean, Robert Carroll did make it explicit, but he just had the wrong anchor. So he still went wrong, even if he made it explicit. If he had done a real reference task forecast, which would have been ask authors who have already finished their books, not planning to do it, but have, that's the key point. This is not planning. It's already been done, so it's empirical. It's on the ground. You can't discuss the numbers. It actually took this long. And then simply add up those numbers and divide by the number of authors. He would have got an answer around five years, would have been, which would have been much closer to what he actually ended up with. Mm -hmm. So one thing you talk about uh, in the, the Pixar process is this concept of uh, the illusion of explanatory depth. How does that uh, uh, derail projects? Yeah, so, so people often think they understand things better than they do. Uh, we give an example that is used in psychology. If you ask somebody to actually uh, explain to you how a bicycle works, if you ask somebody, do you know how a bicycle works? Most people will say, yeah, of course. And then you ask them to actually uh, illustrate it by making a drawing about what it is that makes the bicycle uh, work. And many people can't do it. They actually don't know the specific mechanics of, of uh, how a bicycle works. So that's the illusion of explanatory depth. They think they have a depth of explanation regarding the bicycle that they don't. So that's just a bicycle. But this applies to most everything we do. And it's very important when you do a big project. So these projects that, that we talk about, uh, even writing a book, you know, is a pretty big and complex project. And, uh, and there's much more opportunity for this uh, uh, illusion of explanatory depths uh, in in uh, in those big and complex projects. So it's very important to get rid of it, because mm -hmm. uh, otherwise people think that they know what they are talking about and what they are doing, and they don't. And it's going to be extremely costly because they, it's not that they're not going to find out that they don't understand this. That's not the nature of the beast, you know. Once you start building things, reality hits you, and you yeah. will need to know how it works, right? And and this is forced on you, and you realize you don't understand it. And then you have to fix it on the ground while you're actually doing it. That's a bad way to get into this. So what you need to do, what you need to do is exactly what, the, what Pixar and Gary and other successful project leaders do. 
that you 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 um, asked the question why 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 like why are we doing this and you ask the question how 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 does this work and you keep asking it uh, until you understand exactly why you're doing something and exactly how it works and mm-hmm. you can demonstrate that that you know how it works and of course you know why you're doing it and the thing about knowing why you're doing it means that everybody understands each other everybody's on the same page very often people on big projects think they are on the same page. They think they know why they're doing it, but it actually turns out that different actors in the project are doing the project for different reasons. And some of those reasons end up conflicting, you know, when you get into the delivery process. And that's an unfortunate situation to get into. The thing about the how, you know, understanding how do you actually deliver the product, same thing, you know, that it's something you need to find out before you start the product because it's simply too expensive to find out why you're doing it. No. One thing you talk about is this sort of idea of the first mover advantage and not that whole thing not being such an advantage. Um, Talk to me about that. I mean, I kind of have an understanding of it because, you know, you look at a company like Google, right? They're, I think, the sixth or seventh search engine. I don't remember exactly, but uh, I get that, you know, if you're not first, you actually get to learn from all the people that have gone before you. But I think there is this sort of a mindset that, you know, being first is the biggest advantage, particularly when you're talking about things like Silicon Valley. Yeah, this is something I learned the painful way. Uh, before I moved to Oxford, I was uh, on the board of directors of the Danish court system, so the, the, the Danish national court system from the Supreme Court all the way down to the city courts. And uh, I was one of 11 board main members and we decided to digitize the Danish court system. And we decided to uh, digitize the Danish cadastral system. So that's the system where all... Uh, property is registered. So all physical property uh, is, is registered. And uh, we were first movers. Nobody had done this in the world before. There, were, there was no digital court system at that stage, meaning everything was done digitally, nothing on paper, uh, unless you printed it out from the digital system. And there was no cadastral system, no, no property uh, register that was 100% digital anywhere in the world. It was a big mistake that we did this and it became a huge disaster that were for years and years were on the front pages of the Danish uh, newspapers uh, with cost overruns and delays, people having nervous breakdowns because the IT didn't work. And how can you run a court system if you you start a case and then suddenly it disappears, you know, on your computer? And uh, people stay at home because of this. It was It was really, really bad. And this made me understand, and, and I actually already knew that, but I was in the minority in the, on the board of directors. But, but it, it illustrated to me beyond any reasonable doubt that being a first mover is of dubious uh, benefits. Of course, somebody has to be first, but if you decide to go first, you have to have a really good reason for it. And also, you have to understand that you're taking on enormous risks, namely, namely product development risks, that you're developing a new product that's one of the most difficult things that exists. And uh, it's going to cost you and it's going to be painful. So, so that's why being a first mover is hugely overrated. And it actually turns out, and now we have big studies of this, uh, where many uh, organizations, public and private, have been studied. And uh, it actually turns out that the people like Google that you mentioned, but also Apple, you know, the iPhone is a great example that this wasn't the first smartphone. 
many people had smartphones before the iPhone, but it was the, the first smartphone that really worked, you know. So it didn't matter that Apple wasn't first mover. What mattered was that Apple was the mover that got it right. And it probably was, they, were, they had already been, you know, I don't know, four or five different sm- smartphones uh, before the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this turns out to be a general pattern that it's much uh, better to be, you know, an early follower than it is to be a first mover. It's funny you say that because one of my friends likes to say, he said, Apple doesn't invent things, they perfect them. Yes, absolutely true. And that's intelligent. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what, that's what I recommend. There's so, you hear this over and over. There's so many people in project management and project leadership that are so excited about being first with something. This is, this, you know, a lot of this comes out of engineering. There's nothing that an engineer loves better than to be the first. And who wouldn't? I mean, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that it's costly. Uh, Who wouldn't want to be the first with something? And who doesn't want to be the, you know, the, build the tallest skyscraper, who doesn't want to build the fastest plane, the longest undersea tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on, right? All I'm saying is that you really have to stop yourself when you get into that kind of thinking and decide whether you're willing to pay the cost that that entails and the pain. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up by talking about two things, uh, modularity, and let's use a concrete example of applying these principles. Let's use a wedding as an example. Not that yeah. I, you know, I've had one yet, but, um, you know, I figure if I have you here, I could potentially avoid the hell that comes with wedding planning from what I've seen from everybody who's ever planned one. Yes. So uh, modularity is, means, you know, subdividing things into uh, smaller parts. So I'm Danish and I always use Lego, which is a Danish toy and Danish product that most people know. I use Legos as the metaphor here that, you need to know what your Lego is. And uh, at weddings, the most obvious thing, which we mentioned in the book, is the wedding cake. It actually turns out that even the most flamboyant uh, and biggest wedding cake is built from small modules of cake, small modular cakes, you know, that you can just pa- keep piling, you know, and uh, and, uh, and then build a, a cake, whatever size you want from that. And, uh, and that's one of the secrets, you know, to these fancy wedding cakes. We generalize that and, and, uh, and it's all the way from the wedding cakes to the climate crisis. Modularity is extremely important. Uh, regarding the climate crisis, it's actually our luck, you know, that uh, the energy sources, the renewables that are going to solve this problem for us of the, uh, of the climate crisis are hugely modular. Like solar cells are born modular. It's called a solar cell, you know, and, uh, you put it on a panel, then you have many panels and uh, you have a ra- an array of cells. You put in many arrays, you have a solar farm. If that's not enough, you build another farm and so on. So it skates all the way up from the solar cell to, to many, many farms. And you can get how many gigawatts you, you need out of that. The same with wind turbines, also highly modular. There's a foundation, there's a tower, there's a nest shell, which is where the, the, the turbine is. And then you put uh, wings on. So it's click, click, click. Those four elements you click together with three clicks and you can actually put one of these up, you know, and they, they are huge these days uh, uh, in a day and, and have uh, power production immediately. Uh, and this is something completely new and it's all because of modularity. And that's what's going to save us, you know, that, that you can do this. And the reason modularity is important is because it's fast. You can do things fast and we need to do things fast with the, with the climate crisis. And, uh, 
because there are specific deadlines uh, uh, to stay within the limits that we need to stay within. And it's just our good luck that, that it is like this and it really works. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up talking about planning a wedding. Let's say, you know, for the sake of you know making this a mega project, it's an Indian wedding. I don't know if you've ever been to one, but Indian weddings are definitely mega projects. Um, you know, for example, my sister and brother-in-law, because they're both from different parts of India, uh, his family had, you know, their community from 40 years in Chicago. We had ours for 30 years in Southern California. And I remember when my sister initially started looking for a venue and said, I want somewhere cool and unique. And then I told her, I was like, unless you're planning on excavating the Titanic from the ocean, I don't know where you're going to fit 900 people without spending a fortune. So they ended up having two wedding receptions, funny enough. Um, but let's use that as, as sort of an example. Where would we begin to avoid it from turning into this disaster, keeping in mind that politics and power will play a role because Indian people all have to invite their parents, friends. In fact, half the guests at the wedding are people you've like met once in your life, but they're close friends of your parents. So you feel entitled to an invite. Um, and if you serve shitty food, it's the only thing people will talk about because that's what every Indian wedding is judged by. So with those parameters, let's you know run it through your framework here. Right. So uh, at the end of the book, uh, we have a quota. It's called 11 heuristics for better project leadership. Heuristics are rules of thumb, you know, that simplify the world for you. And so these are my 11 heuristics for how I would do projects. Uh, if, 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 at, actually how I do projects, when I do projects, which I do quite a lot. And uh, the first one is called hire a master builder. And this, this would be my top number one recommendation to people uh, who are planning a wedding like that. Get somebody who knows how to do this, who's a master at doing this, and who has a track record of having done it before. Don't hire anybody that doesn't have a, a track record. That's really important. So hire a master builder. That's the first thing that you need to do. And then, of course, you need to do the thinking fast and slow thing. Uh, and no, thinking slow and fast, sorry. Um, that, that you need to think it through before you start. You need to do like Pixar and Frank Gehry. You actually need to simulate the wedding. And the more you can chop it into modules where you say, okay, here's a module for the food. Here's a, a module for entertainment. Here's a module for, uh, you know, how people are going to stay, uh, uh, you know, how they're going to be housed for the wedding and so on. Here's a module for transportation. The more you can modularize this and get people who really know how to do these things uh, the better for you, but but the basic thing is simulate the whole thing before you uh, before you start, uh, and then make sure that you're ready. And the thing with the wedding is, and other events like that, is that they are merciless in the sense that when, once you go live, you're live. The, the, it's the <laughs> point. Of, it's the point of no return, right? So it has to be right, uh, and it has to be thought through uh, during the thing. Uh, slow phase and and actually it, it's going to be delivered pretty fast i mean even though i know that even indian weddings uh you know indian weddings take like sometimes you can have a wedding for a week you know but still you mm -hmm. know even for an indian wedding there's a time limit to that it's pretty fast uh so the preparation is really the key word for for the wedding and and like i said get people uh people who have tried to do it before the second heuristic in the 11th heuristic get the team right so you need, in, in addition to hire this master builder, you need a team, but usually the master builder will actually come with the team. So that's what you need to hire the person. Uh, you need to ask the person that you are hiring as the, the key responsible individual. You need to ask, okay, 
who's your team and do they also have experience like you do and, and have you used them before for delivering together as this team? So you want a team that is used to, to doing this. Um, you know, you need to ask the why question, you know, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it because we are getting married, but you know, get into the detail is what do you want to achieve with this? What is it that you want the outcome to be? You talked about the food. So you might say we want the people to have an exquisite exquisite experience regarding the food because we know that everybody's going to talk about that afterwards and so on. So these are things to get through uh, in the discussion of why you're doing it, what do you want to achieve with it and so on. But anyways, if you took those 11 heuristics at the end of the book and you systematically went through them for your wedding, you'd get a great wedding. I guarantee it. And you're welcome to complain to me if it doesn't happen. Well, let me, you know, you know, much to my Indian mother's dismay, I'm still single, but good to know that I have, you know, a heuristic to make it go off without a hitch. <laughs> um, well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So I think that you need to have a very special fingerprint. Uh, so I would say a Frank Gehry building is unmistakable. I would say a Pixar movie is unmistakable. Uh, I would even say the Empire State Building is unmistakably a building by the architect who did that building. And uh, so you need to have this kind of uh, signature. And I guess that's why some of this architecture is called signature architecture. So you need to have a signature. Frank Gehry told me that he's teaching, no, when, 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 so he's teaching students some, from time to time in architectural schools, and some of them have qualms about, uh, you know, whether they can do anything interesting. And what he does is he asks them, write, the sign- the, write your signature on this piece of paper. So he gives them a pen and a piece of paper and says, write your signature. And he'll, write a, he'll ask the whole bunch of students to do this. And he'll say, look at your signatures. They are all unmistakable. They're all yours. This is your signature. Not one of them is alike. They are all different. That's how your buildings are going to be if you really understand how to do architecture. If you really go into it and understand what it means to make good design and so on, that design will be like your signature. It will be signature design by you and nobody will be in doubt that it's by you. So that's how you make things unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom, your story, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything they're up to? So uh, the best place is to follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Excellent. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.